an easy question for you to start off with. What is the most often voiced criticism of the church and Christians? You ought to be able to get this. They're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what the most voiced criticism is, isn't it? Christians are criticized for being a bunch of hypocrites. We don't practice what we preach. We're quick to tell others how they should live their lives and just as quick to excuse our own less than perfect behavior. Sometimes these kinds of criticisms are baseless and unfair. But sometimes there's more truth to them than we would like to admit. Today, Peter is going to give us some guidance on how to avoid or to at least minimize this kind of criticism. We're continuing our study through the letter of 1 Peter today. We're in chapter 2. We'll be picking up in verse 11. So if you have your Bible in whatever form it is, you can start making your way there. Would you like me to give you his answer now? And kind of, you know, it's, it's found in brief in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, live it. Live it. That is the silver bullet for establishing credibility as a Christian before a watching world. Maybe you were hoping that something with a little more flash would be shared with you. Something couched in modern psychological terms. Something with a seven-letter acronym. No. It's simply this. We want to live a simple, genuine, humble, Christ-honoring life. I read a biography of Billy Graham a few years ago. There are a few people that come to mind for me from our own culture and from the modern era who have maintained their credibility as a Christian as well as Billy Graham did over the 99 years of his life. He was not a perfect man. He made his share of mistakes and blunders. But most people, even those who didn't like him, would agree that he lived an exemplary Christian life. His biographer, David Aikman, wrote that during his life, quote, since the 1950s, he, Billy Graham, appeared in the annual top 10 listing of the most admired Americans in polls organized by the Gallup organization 37 times, and for the 17 of those times, he was in the top four of the list. In the eyes of the public, Billy Graham was one of the most respected people in our country. And there were no secrets about what his beliefs were or who he worshipped. Everyone knew where this guy was coming from. Here's my point in highlighting this. The way people view you and me as a Christian is going to be more dependent upon our personal behavior around them than whatever their general feelings might be towards Christians generally. See, we have the opportunity to win people over and earn their respect every day with our life. I want to share one story with you from Billy Graham's life, which I think illustrates the kind of personal integrity that he had. In 1952, he was offered a personal gift of $6 million in cash by the Texas oil billionaire H.L. Hunt, if he would run for President of the United States. 
Think about the gravity of a temptation like that. That was a huge amount of money by the standards of 1952. Added to that was the temptation of the very real possibility of becoming the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States. Given his wide respect by the public at the time, it was probable that he could actually win the election if he ran for president. He turned down the offer point blank. Why? He knew what God had called him to, and he stuck to that. God had called him to be an evangelist, not the president of the United States. Can you imagine what would have happened if Billy Graham had taken the offer to run for president? And subsequently becoming president. He would have been a very wealthy man. He would have been a very powerful man. But think, too, of the impact that decision would have had in other ways. As an evangelist, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to more people than anyone else in history. It's estimated that he preached to live audiences to some 220 million people the world over, and saw some three million of those people respond to his invitations to receive Christ as Savior. It's estimated that when his Easter sermon was broadcast in 1996, that about two and a half billion, with a B, billion people at, in more than 160 countries heard that sermon that day. In addition to the people directly impacted by Billy Graham's ministry, think of the millions and millions of people who have been impacted indirectly. People who started following Jesus in response to his ministry, then went out and shared Christ with others who came to faith in Jesus and so on. The ripple effect of his ministry was gigantic. All of that, or at least a huge portion of it, might have been lost if Billy Graham had become president rather than remaining true to the calling that God had on his life. His biographer, David Aikman, wrote, The test of Graham's soul, indeed, lay not in adversity, but in how he coped with success. Perhaps no other individual in the history of the Western world in modern times has been more tempted by the rewards thrust in front of him by a success-worshipping culture. It is little short of astonishing, especially considering the scandals affecting some evangelists in recent times, how entirely Graham avoided any major moral or ethical lapse throughout his career. Graham's achievement lay in his consistent Faithfulness to his original sense of God's calling on his life despite nearly overwhelming temptations at times to do something more lucrative, more glamorous, and less exhausting. Billy Graham was a person who lived out a credible Christian life. And what was his secret? 1 Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We're looking at verses 11 and 12 today. This is Peter's basic instructions to us on how we are to live our lives among unbelievers. 
He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from, sexual, from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The first thing that we can glean is this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Last time, in verses 4 through 10, Peter told us who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. He said, Christians are a living temple in which God dwells, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a special possession of God with an eternally worthy purpose. When Peter refers to us here as foreigners and exiles, he's reminding us again of who we are. This world is not our home. We have been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, as it says in verse 9. In order for us to live a Christ-honoring life in this world, we need to remember who we are. Who we are gives us the motivation to live a Jesus-honoring life in this world. Who we are establishes the foundation for why we live a Jesus-honoring life in this world. We're seeking to live a holy life because the one who has saved us and brought us into his family He's holy. Our Father is holy. If our Christianity is just a behavior modification or a self-improvement technique, then it's not Christianity. It's something else. Jesus said we must be born again. Peter says we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says earlier in his letter, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. We are given a new life when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Living a Christ-honoring life in this world begins with us remembering who we are now. We are children of God. And we want to exhibit our Father's characteristics in our new life. He's holy, and we're to be holy like Him. It says, as foreigners and exiles now, there is a separation that exists which frees us to pursue a different kind of life than what is offered to us by this world. This world is no longer our primary source for fulfillment and purpose. These things come from outside of this world for us. Now, they come from our Heavenly Father. Peter writes, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He's telling us to seek after the eternal things of God rather than the things of this temporary place where we are foreigners and exiles. We want to nurture our new life and its desires and stay away from the desires of our old life, our sinful nature. The Bible tells us that we are all born with a sinful nature. It's not something that we had to work at to acquire. It's not something that we had to learn. We have a sinful nature built in when we roll out of the factory. Every single one of us. No one had to teach me how to be selfish. I just kind of knew how to do that. My temper was naturally quick and hot. I've had to work at controlling my temper. 
When you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're born again. You now have a new life in you, and we want to do all we can to help our new life grow and thrive. And one of the ways that we do that, Peter says, is to abstain, to stay away from sinful desires because they are literally fighting, battling, warring against the good work of God in us. These things are seeking to tear down our very soul. We don't always consider the impact that our sinful desires and actions are having on our soul, but we should. When we see it the way Peter describes here, it raises the importance of our indiscretions and indulgences. These things are waging war against our soul. They have the deliberate purpose of destroying us. In 1 Peter 2.2, we were told to crave or deeply desire pure spiritual milk, referring to the Word of God. This is a desire of our new life, which we want to replace these sinful desires. Verse 12 of chapter 2, Peter continues here and he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want to start by talking about this word pagans. The original Greek word here in this text that is translated as pagans in the NIV, English translation of the Bible, is ethnos, which means nations or people. It's usually translated into English as Gentiles. Peter is referring to people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. I think it is really, really unfortunate that the NIV chose to translate this word as pagans. Pagan is a word that carries a derogative tone, and it's technically a word that refers to a particular type of religious belief. Neither of those things is Peter's intended meaning here. Peter is talking about all people who are not followers of Jesus, and Peter is not intending to sound derogatory in any way in his reference to people who are not yet followers of Jesus. The word pagan is absolutely the wrong word to use here. It misrepresents Peter, and it misleads Christians about how they should see people who are not followers of Jesus. Don't use that word to refer to people who don't believe in Jesus. The Lord loves all people. He desires that every person come to saving faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Peter did not use the word pagan here. He uses the word people. I think it's unfortunate that the NIV chose to use that word. The Lord desires that all people come to a saving faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't use a derogatory term to refer to any of us. Well, here's the surest way of silencing the critics about our Christianity. Live such a good life among all people. 
that even if unbelievers accuse you of being a hypocrite, those accusations will be completely unfounded and they will instead glorify God when the truth is brought to light. There's a lie that is whispered into our ears by the enemy of our soul that tells us that following the moral code of the Bible will be off-putting and people will reject us. That may happen. But you will have your integrity and people will recognize that. Peter tells us, live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. However, the Christian who abandons their moral convictions to conform and to accommodate and to be accepted by unbelievers, they will discover that they have lost their integrity and their respect. Please hear me on this, uh, you guys. I'm talking about you and me living by the moral code of the Bible, not telling other people to live by the moral code of the Bible. You and I need to follow the teachings of Jesus regardless of whether anyone else does or not, regardless of what our nation allows people to live like. That doesn't matter. What we want to do is live our own life in this way, too many Christians spend far too much time telling everyone else how they are supposed to live, and they fail to live that way themselves. And that does not earn us any respect. It destroys our credibility. Do we have to live a perfect life? It would be nice if we could do that. But none of us are capable of that. And that's not really what people are looking for us to do. They know we aren't perfect. No one is perfect. It's the pretending to be perfect, the putting on false airs that people find so offensive. What people are looking for in our life is genuineness and humility. We want to live as good a life as we can and then be humble and honest enough to admit when we have failed, own our sin, ask for forgiveness, seek to make things right where we need to. There's a bumper sticker that used to be uh, popular among Christians that read, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen a bumper sticker or a meme or a window sticker that basically says the same. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. As a Christ follower, we want to reach higher than that. We aren't perfect, and we are forgiven, but we want to honor Jesus with our life as much as we possibly can, and when we fall short and need to make amends, we do it humbly and with integrity. Regarding that bumper sticker, I don't think unbelievers understood it, understand it the way Christians intend them to. The unbeliever, more often than not, reads that bumper sticker as a smug proclamation of your special status with God. What they see is, I'm forgiven, too bad you aren't. Christians, we need to be far more thoughtful about the impressions that we're making with people. 
too often the things we say, the things we do, the things we put on our cars, the things we post as memes and social media and so forth, it communicates more an exclusionary arrogance rather than a gracious, open-handed desire to help others find the same kind of relationship with God that we have. Is it wrong to celebrate your relationship with the Lord? Absolutely not. Be joyful. Celebrate your salvation. But please give serious thought to the impressions that you are making upon the watching world around you with the things that you say and how you say them, the messages that you are conveying to them. The Jesus way is to be others-focused. That's where our thoughts are supposed to go, Jesus said, to think about others. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Pete, uh, Jesus is teaching here. This is part of his teaching what, that's called the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt, in the ancient world, it served many purposes. Among them, uh, salt was used to flavor food, similar to the way that we use salt today. On these cooking contest shows, one of the things that will get you chopped faster than just about anything, is a failure to put enough salt on the food. I mean, you can overdo it with the chili powder and survive to the next round. But if you don't season the food enough, which is a code word for salt, then you're toast. Salt is essential. It brightens and enhances the flavor of whatever it's put on. A small amount of salt can even intensify the sweetness of a food, can't it? Christian, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. Your presence in this world is as essential as salt is to food. Be a source of flavor in your world. Be the thing that brightens everything around you, the thing that enhances the lives of others. Don't be like everyone else. Don't behave like everyone else. Be what's different. Salt is a different thing than the rest of the food. Follow the new ethic that Jesus teaches us. Be the gracious one. Be the forgiving one. Be the truthful one. Be the honest one. Be the patient one. Be the joyful one. Be the courageous one. Be the humble one. Be the encouraging one. That's being salt. Salt was used in the ancient world as a preservative. People would rub salt into meat, for example, and that would slow the decay of the meat considerably. A familiar example in our own uh, time is jerky. Jerky is meat which has been heavily salted, and it lasts a long time. Stick it in your pocket, it'd be good for weeks. 
as salt, we're to be a preserving influence in the world too. Have a positive, life-infusing influence on others. Be an example of what is good and right and pure and honorable. Jesus said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The, the salt of the ancient world contained a lot of impurities and compounds other than sodium chloride. People gathered salt from just naturally occurring salt deposits. Any processing of salt that they may have done was very crude by today's standards. As a result, salt could look like salt but not be very salty in taste or function. The salty part of the salt could get leached away and the remaining substance would lack saltiness. This saltiless salt, it wasn't good for much of anything. I mean, like Jesus said, you obviously can't add the salty part back into it. So it was simply thrown away. The point Jesus is making is that it's important that we be salty. If we are not salty, then we're failing to fulfill our God-given purpose in this world. Our value to the world has disappeared if we're not salty. Jesus continues in verse 14 of Matthew 5. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A light is meant to shine and give direction. A light concealed under a bowl would be useless. A light on a stand, in contrast, can be clearly seen and people benefit from its light. And the same idea is true of a town built on a hill. It can be seen by people from a long way away, providing direction and benefit. Jesus Christ himself is the one true light of the world. John chapter 8, for example, he talks about that. He wants his followers you and me, to live as lights in this world, too. Displaying through our lives the transforming power of the Lord and the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in us. See, light-radiating people live lives that bring glory to the Lord. As a follower of Jesus, we are to live for Him so others can see our life and what He's doing in our life, through our life, and so glorify our Father in heaven. You might remember that it says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we have been called out of darkness and into His wonderful light. We were in darkness before the Lord came into our life and brought us into His wonderful light. We're to be lights now that help lead others out of that same darkness and into the Lord's wonderful light by letting them see the light of the Lord in us. What Jesus is teaching in this passage is the same thing that Peter is teaching in the passage in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 
A Christian who's being the salt of the earth and the light of the world is someone who is living such a good life among the people of this world that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good life and glorify God on the day He visits us. A person who is being salt and light is a person who is seeking to put into practice what Jesus taught. It's not complicated. Jesus is calling us to live out in our daily life the things that He taught. He's the great light of the world, and we are to be the reflectors of that light to others by living an obedient life to the Lord, cooperating with the Holy Spirit's life-changing good work in us. Be a Jesus reflector wherever you are. Imitate Jesus. The people around you are looking for the real thing. Be the real thing. Be a real Jesus follower. That's the kind of salt and light that this world is hungry for. And that's the kind of salt and light that we're called to be. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us, pulled us out of the darkness and the confusion of our life, and you have brought us into your wonderful light, your truth. You've saved us. You've given us a new life. You've made us part of your family. You have given us so much, Lord, and we are so grateful for that. And I pray that we would live a life of gratitude toward you. Lord, help us be salt and light in this world, letting people see the work that you're doing in us. Help us to reflect you, Jesus, in the way we live our life to imitate you, to follow you, Lord. Continue, continue your good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.